Good morning, everyone. So, our scriptures today uh, proclaimed, uh, the first reading along with the gospel are presented. Uh, what, one of the things that it does is it shows us it's in the ordinary. Uh, Eli the young man, I mean, uh, Samuel the young man, Eli the priest, just a normal evening. And they're just sleeping as they normally do. In the gospel, it's just another day in the life of John the Baptist who has an encounter. And so my friends, uh, we pick that up uh, in that first reading. Um, Eli is a priest of the temple. He's a Levitical priest. And he has, uh, as they understood, a disciple of his. That's how they understood it. Uh, he's mentoring Eli. And um, Eli hears someone calling. And he goes uh, to his master. I'm here. And Eli's like, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. And uh, he hears it again. And he gets up. Here I am. And Eli's like, I, I didn't call you. Go, go, to, go to sleep. Go back to bed. It happens again. And my friends, uh, one of the things that I understand is God's voice. Eli thinks it's his mentor. He thinks it's his master talking to him. So, uh, I joked at the last Mass, and I said, what it didn't sound like was, Samuel, call. It doesn't sound odd and weird. It sounded familiar to him. He couldn't distinguish between someone he knew very well from the stranger voice. So it's the ordinary. What also I picked up was the priest didn't figure it out either. Samuel comes I didn't call you, go back to bed. Again, I didn't call you, go back to bed. I didn't call, oh, wait a minute. Whoops, God's talking <laughs> to you. So it took the priest a little while to figure it out too. And my friends, I bring this up uh, because sometimes God works in the ordinary. Sometimes uh, uh, we understand that voice could be, uh, people sometimes say my conscience or um, someone else or uh, God doesn't use the burning bush anymore. He doesn't use the pillar of fire at night. and He doesn't do that. Sometimes he uses other people. And uh, this happened to me in the very ordinary situation. Deacon, last week, him and I were just having a regular conversation, and we were walking around the church to come to the front to come in, and Deacon said something to me about my homily. I totally ignored it. Then he said something again about the homily this time i didn't ignore it he didn't even know that god was using him to reach me i had my own ideas about what i was going to do three-part homily a b and c i delivered a at 5 30 part b at 8 30 and i was going to deliver c at 11 that's what i was going to do <laughs> but apparently i wasn't listening to jesus <laughs> so he used the deacon Deacon didn't even know. Deacon was just having his conversation. But I picked up the second comment of the deacon as not typical of him. And that's what got my attention. That was God telling me, you will not deliver C, you will deliver B. Because B is what someone needs to hear. And that is not an arrogant statement. That means something in the homily needed to be said for that person. And I take this from the first reading. Um, it's, we're told that later, 
Samuel begins to grow, and God is with him, and God is with me, and God is with you also. We just need to open our minds and our hearts to him to see his activity with us. And it went on to say that uh, God did not permit anything that Samuel said to be ineffective. Samuel would be a prophet. He would become an important prophet because through him, the first king, earthly king, would be anointed. And what he meant was that Samuel was going to be a prophet and what he spoke on behalf of God uh, would come to pass. It was something about what he was saying affected the people. So Deacon and I always hope that after prayer and when we deliver a homily that, that something in the homily will also move you. Uh, this is what uh, we always hope for. And um, my friends, uh, when we say in the Roman Catholic Church a prophet, we're not talking about a fortune teller. When people hear prophet, they think prophecy, something in the future. Prophets speak the word of God now that is needed. Sometimes it's a warning. If you don't change your ways, that's going to happen. And that's not telling the future. That's pointing out the obvious. Uh, so we want to make sure we understand prophet, what that means. And some of my friends, uh, um, there we are told uh, about God and how he acted. Yes, it says Samuel did not know God. And I immediately think, well, what is the priest doing <laughs> that Samuel doesn't know God? But uh, it tells us, because God did not reveal in a particular way to Samuel. That's why Samuel doesn't. But it's just fascinating that Samuel thought it was Eli the priest talking to him, and in fact it was God speaking. God can use our imagination. Uh, God can use our conscience. So don't just easily discount these things. Discern them. Is this God speaking to me? Because his thumbprint are, are in our hearts and in our minds, so he can do this. And, and it's done in the ordinary. Nothing particularly. I mean, when we look back on it, we can see this is quite extraordinary. And this brings me to our gospel. Our gospel, um, it's an event that seems very simple. Um, but in hindsight, we see it's not. And we have Jesus arriving on the scene. Uh, now he's no longer baby. I'm saying that because he just saw the Christmas. Now he's an adult. He's about 30. Um, and we're told about uh, an event that happens in the life of John the Baptist. It's just another day he's at the River Jordan, as he normally is, uh, baptizing people. This case he has, as is their custom and tradition, he had disciples. So he's with a couple of his disciples. And for some time, um, John the Baptizer has been telling people there is someone coming. What's fascinating to me is he doesn't say my cousin. He just says, someone's coming. Remember, Jesus and John are cousins. And it's, maybe it's possible they hadn't seen each other in a long time. You know how it is with cousins. And um, John the Baptist is telling him, the long-awaited Messiah is close at hand. And one day, then, he is on the Jordan River with two of his disciples, John and Andrew, we're told. Um, and it seems very normal. 
until this man walks by. This man happens to be his cousin. He doesn't say, there is my cousin, the Lamb of God. He just says, there's the Lamb of God. He's the one I've been telling you about. John releases two of his disciples to go after Jesus. What I mean by releasing, he no longer says, you will not be my disciples. You will go after him now. You will follow him. And my friends, um, there's details that are not spoken about, and there are details that are. John the Evangelist says it's 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Me, I'm like, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, what does that mean? Because I'm looking for its meaning. It don't mean anything. <laughs> Darn it, John, you tricked me again <laughs> in the reading of this gospel. And then Jesus, there's nothing extraordinary about him. He's dressed just like the others, not like John the Baptist. No one dressed like John the Baptist. But uh, Jesus is dressed like all the other men of his time. And um, for those who did know him, they know his background. He's the son of a carpenter. And yet John the Baptist, something within him says this, Behold the Lamb of God. He is the man I've been telling you about. He is the one who comes after me, but I am not worthy to tie his shoes. And John and Andrew, John says, Go after him. And they decide to follow the stranger. They stay behind Jesus. So they're following behind them. And Jesus finally stops and turns around and looks at them. And uh, he asks a question. What are you looking for? And I joke and I said, it's not the same thing that a wife asks her husband when he's at the front door. What are you looking for? The car keys or whatever it might be. In the Aramaic, uh, into Hebrew, into Latin, and into English, it's a different meaning. What are you looking for is really understood as what is your desire? And my friends, I am not so wise as to make this up myself. This actually comes from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Catechism teaches that God has given you a gift of desire. And that desire will lead you to him. So what Jesus is asking, what is it that you desire? What are you searching for? And they ask him, where are you staying? And you read that and you think, no, nothing big about it, no, just nothing. That means nothing. Are you staying at a hotel? Are you at the inn? Are you camped out by the river? That's not what they're asking, what they're asking of Jesus is, who are you? What are you about? What's happening? And Jesus says, come and see. And then immediately John the evangelizer says, they went and they saw. This is the detail that John doesn't give us, and it's irritating to me because I want to know. What did Jesus say to those two disciples? What were they talking about? Something happened. Because even though the scripture says, and they stayed with them, it was about four o'clock in the afternoon. And it sounds like then they went away, but they didn't. Because we were told the next day, one of them goes, gets their brother. And the brother is 
is excited. The Messiah, the Messiah, we found the Messiah. What did Jesus say? Whatever he said came to pass because it changed their lives. They would ultimately give their life for Jesus and for his mission and everything he said. The only one that would, John the evangelist is the only one who didn't become a martyr. I believe it's because he was taking care of Mary. He ultimately would take care of Mary, so he was to stay on this earth and not give his life that way. But the others would give testimony by their very life. And um, my friends, desire is a gift from God. Why? Because desire, the thing that you desire, you will go after. You will go after it, and you will be relentless until you get it. You desired her, didn't you? And you got it. Right? You see what I'm getting at? He knows. The thing that you desire, you will seek out with all your energy. So the catechism says, it is a gift from God, and ultimately you will seek him because he made you. I'll give you an example of Father Mark, who ran away from Jesus for many years. I went from Michigan, where I grew up, to Chicago. Work, always work. From Chicago to New York. From New York to California. California back to Michigan. Michigan back to Chicago. And I always did well in my occupation. I did really well, but I was always restless. From a small child, I knew I was supposed to be a priest. But as my mother rightly said, he's a spoiled, selfish brat. <laughs> and I was. I did what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it until I wanted to do it, blah, 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 blah. The other thing was I was afraid. Having been poor and living in a car, I didn't want to be poor anymore. And the other thing is I didn't want to be alone. We don't get to be married. I get to have a goldfish. I get more. I'm a... The whole time that I was working, I was alone. <laughs> I never had a significant other. I never had anyone like that. I didn't really date. High school, high school, I did a little bit dating, but not a big deal. Matter of fact, it meant nothing to me. It just wasn't in my system that way. It shows you just how crazy people can be. I was worried about being alone, and the whole time I was. <laughs> And Jesus just points it out. <laughs> so my friends, this, the other gift that God gives us is imagination. I discovered this over the past couple years when I would tell people, I read the scriptures and I see a movie. And the movie helps me to understand. Well, that sounded like I needed some psychological help. <laughs> but what I wasn't, what I come to understand was that it was the gift of imagination. God gave me the imagination so that I would come to understand. And uh, so, my friends, um, for you, he's given that the same to you. you. My vocation, the deacon's vocation, uh, we are in the ministerial priesthood. I mean, we serve God's people, the royal priesthood. But all of you have occupations, but you also have a vocation. The overriding vocation as a baptized person is to be a disciple and to testify to Jesus Christ. 
Now, you can choose to ignore it. I chose to ignore what he was doing by running away, and you see what that's gotten me. Here I am in Gig Harbor, Washington, 2024, preaching to you one of my long homilies. <laughs> but all of us are, are called to do that. And um, some of us know uh, very early on, Cole, don't run away. Don't do what I did. And you see, in the end, he gets what he wants anyway. All of you are baptized, and you have a vocation to be a Christian. And I, you know, I went to this family to be a dad, to be a mom. Those are vocations also. Those are not an occupation. <laughs> Although for some people, maybe it seems like it is, but it is not. But you are to testify to him. And uh, ultimately, uh, and this is not for me, this, had, this would come from... Um, Augustine, he said, uh, our hearts are restless until we rest in him. Finally, when I just stopped running and said, okay, here I am. And that statement that Samuel makes, here I am, that here means I am ready. That here means I'm not there. For me, it meant I wasn't in New York anymore. I wasn't in Chicago. I wasn't being selfish anymore. Here I am, Lord, speak to me. And for me, it was like, I've been talking to you the whole time. You've been ignoring me, just like your mom said. Spoiled little brat. <laughs> but now I'm going to show you a better way. And now my heart is not restless like that anymore. But ultimately, that deepest desire will be for him, even for you guys. But the path will be different. My friends, um, I think the desire exists so that we are able to understand purpose always. And uh, Thomas Aquinas, he's the one who said, and I have his quote, uh, he's a great thinker. Uh, he's the one who said, uh, we become obsessed, so when desire becomes disordered, it's not good. You go after what you should not. And ultimately, he says, you go, and when you finally get it, you're disappointed <laughs> because ultimately it was not what you wanted. What you were seeking was something different. And uh, I understood that um, because he said your heart will not be satisfied until that deepest of the desires becomes fulfilled. And that means being with God. And my friends... Uh, that brings me to what Jesus said. What did he say to them that made them their life change? It was not just a meeting of Jesus. It was an encounter with him. They encountered him, and they asked to know him. Uh, the first reading said uh, Samuel didn't know him, meaning God. And brings us, do we know him? Do you really know Jesus? Because if you do... Your life will be changed. It will be transformed. Uh, it will be set on a different trajectory. And um, this is what happened. I think it's not in the scriptures, but I'm basing it on the other scriptures. What did Jesus talk about with those two that made them change their life? I think part of it is found uh, in 
Uh, John teases out more stuff later on, and we'll see that later on in the following uh, chapters. But um, Jesus says, come and see, and they stayed. I think ultimately what Jesus told them, Jesus has a high priestly prayer. It says, Father, that I am in them, they are in me, but I, and I will be in you. I think what he told them was, come after me. Come and see. I am going to take you to the Father. I live in the Father. And that is where you want to be. You want to be with the Father. And I think that's what changed their life. And I hope it changes your life. They would ultimately give their life. And that brings me to St. Paul. St. Paul's epistle sometimes doesn't fit in to the other two readings because it's just kind of different for Paul. But Paul um, talks about testimony of discipleship. In this case, he puts it in the context of sexual morality. And what he's saying is your body no longer belongs to you because it was purchased by Jesus. God made you. He sustains you. He will raise you from the dead. I can't do that. You can't do that for her. Only Jesus can do that. So he says, use your bodies properly. Now, Paul is going to put it into the negative. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do that. And there's nothing wrong with that. And in his time, men treated women like objects to be owned. That was, that was then. I don't know, maybe it's still like that today for some Paul would say, don't do this. The Holy Spirit has visited your body. It is now a temple. And he will say, don't treat your temple badly. And uh, Paul didn't have a very good liking about tattoos. So if he didn't like tattoos, can you imagine if he was here today, what he would think about the other things people do to their bodies? <laughs> yeah. And Paul would say, stop misusing your body. It belongs to God. He will raise it on the last day. Now, I wonder, uh, when he does that, will people be keeping their tattoos in the resurrected life? Maybe, but I'm getting off track with, with this. My friends, I want to put it in the positive for you. Use your body. Today, we have all kinds of trafficking of humans, women and men and children, which is wicked and awful. People selling their bodies in wicked ways, selling their organs. This is all improper. This is not the proper way to treat your body. In particular, our young people, our youth, they are harming themselves because culture is stealing hope from them and infusing in them awful things. We have people who are addicted to adult things, you know what I'm talking about, at 8 years old and at 80 years old. This is desire, but the wrong kind in the wrong place that leads them into a darkness. We have children 
uh, who cut themselves. We have children and young adults who try to commit suicide, or in the way that we say it in 2024, they die from suicide because hope has been taken from them. So here's the positive. Use your bodies for good. Use your tongue to lift up people and not tear them down. Speak forgiveness and mercy and compassion. Build up the person. Use your body and stand up and don't sit in a chair anymore. Stand up for something. All the disciples of Jesus stood up for something. It ultimately got them all executed. You are called to do the same thing. Stand up. Get involved, especially in our youth's lives. Start speaking hope to them so that they won't mistreat their bodies. They look sometimes for something deep. They want friendship and companionship and fidelity and trust and love, and they look in the wrong place for it because society tells them you can and you will find it. And they are left empty. So you, as disciples, stand up and use your bodies and get involved. Don't stay on the fence any longer. Intervene. Do something. Instill hope and love, friendship and companionship, trustworthiness. This is why some of the things that priests did in our church towards children is so wicked. The abuse. When they should have been instilling companionship and trustworthiness and fidelity and talking about Jesus, they did something different because the desire was disoriented. They themselves, too, were lost. So I'm telling you, in the positive, build, use your body to build up. Protect our youth and our children. Get involved. Get in the way. They don't like it. Get out of my way. Stop infringing on my rights. You know, <laughs> Don't do that to them. But you know what I'm saying. But get involved. This is what the disciple does. He testifies. And he gets involved. The original disciples did. So are you expected to do the same. Amen? My friends, the other thing, the Lord always greets you where you're at. I know it sounds like just some kind of silly mantra, but in John's gospel, if you will read the whole gospel, Jesus asked questions to different people in John's gospel. And it seems to be a different question, and it is, but it's always to elicit the same answer. Jesus always asks, what is it that you desire? And he does it in a different way for different people because he's trying to meet you where you're at and trying to get your attention. So go and read John's gospel. Look at the questions that John says that Jesus asked of different people. You'll see them. They stand out. They appear to be totally different questions, but they're not. I only discovered this through prayer and looking back at a teacher of mine who told me and my classmates 
you will never be able to come up with anything new. You will only be able to regurgitate what I tell you in your homilies. <laughs> and at first we thought, what an arrogant priest. <laughs> but he was right. I don't tell you anything new. I've told you what my professors and my teachers have told me. I've just rephrased it in the same way. And that is when I discovered, after 15 years of studying John's gospel, Jesus asks questions in different ways, but it's always looking for the same answer. What is it that you desire from me? And if you will follow him, he will fulfill it for you. Amen?